Hello and welcome everyone to our first episode of the second season of STEMcast. We're incredibly excited to be back and even more excited to have you on board with us. Now we begin our second season with a fresh new lineup of exciting guests that we hope will change the way that you look at science and technology. But nonetheless, we're driven by the same core principles that we've started this podcast off with, and that is to bring knowledge and wisdom about the STEM field and its careers. And we hope to bring that from pioneers in industries like medicine, physics, engineering, and more to you and to the world. And hopefully along the way, we can expand your knowledge of exciting advances in science and introduce you to some amazing individuals who push forward science and technology and who have shaped our world. Our guest today, Dr. Joanne Liu, needs almost no introduction. She's the former international president of Doctors Without Borders, which is one of the largest humanitarian organizations worldwide, and she's currently a member of the United Nations' team that's evaluating the humanitarian response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We're incredibly honored to have her on the podcast, and we talked to her about her long and inspiring journey helping those most in need, as well as her take on the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Liu, when I imagine the career path one has to take to become a doctor, it seems relatively straightforward, or at least that's how TV has put it. Um, doesn't seem easy by any means, but straightforward. Undergrad with a major related to health sciences, medical school, residency, and next thing you know, you're in the clinic or you're overlooking an operating table. However, reading your biography online has made me see that it isn't so straightforward after all. So what does it mean to you to become a doctor without borders? And how is it different from the traditional route I have in the back of my mind? Well, um, I think that um, my journey was a tiny bit different, but not that different. Because at the end of the day, you still need to get the education to become a doctor. But um, I started to to um, entertain the idea to become a physician when I was a teenager. And when I read a few books about doctors working overseas and with Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. And so uh, it's after um, a stay in West Africa when I was 18 years old with Canadian Crossroad that I decided I would go into medicine and work overseas. And then from that moment, uh, I've, all my professional choices were made in function of making sure that I would have um, prof uh, knowledge, medical knowledge that is exportable and useful elsewhere. And so I decided to go into pediatrics. And after that, I uh, decided to go in pediatric emergency because I wanted to go and work in war zones. And so I decided to do PDR in, uh, in New York City. Back then in the 90s, it was a little bit more dodgy than what it is right now. And we had much more gunshot wound and stab wound. And in, and so the exposure in terms of trauma was pretty good. Was becoming president of Doctors Without Borders ever part of that plan? No, it's not something that I planned, you know, when I was uh, 17 years old. Uh, what I really wanted to do was to work uh, for Doctors Without Borders and and. When I was in my early 30s, I ended up doing my first field assignment. And uh, a few years afterwards, I was at the headquarters of uh, Médecins Sans Frontières in Paris, in charge of operation in about a dozen of countries. And then for me back then, it was like, oh my God, uh, my 
my dream came true. So, uh, so I thought that was it. And, but I decided to come back here in Canada uh, after a few years and go back to full-time um, medicine, PGR. And uh, I, I was doing every day a field assignment between four to eight weeks. And I uh, decided uh, to, to run for, to be uh, the president for MSF Canada. And, uh, and then after that, I, I thought it was a bit of a natural path to go for the international presidency for the reason that I was concerned about um, how the organization was growing. And I was afraid that uh, we were spending too much time on growing the infrastructure of Doctors Without Borders and uh, not growing our operation. And so I made a campaign to be elected as international president called Patient First where basically uh, it, for me, um, it was to, if we are to see our growth, is to see it through the lens of our patients. When you first began your position as president of MSF, one of the first things you actually did was you went to visit Syria, is that correct? Yes, what, I, what happened is, is I got elected in June, 2013 and 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 Syria was really uh, was really a hot spot back then, and I, th- I think it still is to a certain extent. And so um, it was one of the best part of the world that I never worked before and had no experience. So one of the thing I decided was that um, we wanted to talk about Syria, what was going on. We wanted to do a sort of a uh, basically do some communication about the plight on the civilian in Syria. And, and I had decided at the outset that uh, when I'm going to be speaking about a crisis, I will speak it because I know about it and I've experienced it to a certain extent. And so since back then, I wasn't really well known. What I ended up doing is I went undercover for one month and worked as a physician in the northern part of Syria uh, yeah, for, for, for about a month. Now, having your boots on the ground in Syria especially at the height of the Syrian civil war crisis, seems both terrifying, but also incredibly inspiring and courageous. And I think it symbolizes what great leadership really looks like. Could you talk to us more about your experience in Syria and what it was like to be there and observe the conflict firsthand, and especially take care of patients in such uncertain and dangerous times? Yeah, so basically back then we were having those kind of uh, embedded type of uh, point of care, ER and uh, operating theater. And um, we had just moved in a sort of a new town uh, east of Aleppo in a building apartment. And uh, we had an ER and I was working as an emergency physician. So that was fun because I was doing a shift like all the other ER physician and uh, doing the triage. It was such a very, very, uh, peculiar moment because you could you could be a few hours without a patient and all of a sudden there would be a ball bomb drop on a market and all of a sudden your you ER will fail. So this is a kind of, of rhythm of life we had. But when we were like some downtime, it was great to just be able to chill with the staff, drink tea, and they would tell you about the, their stories, about their journey and why they're staying and why they wanted to to stay for the population, because if they were to to leave, 
then it means that uh, the civilian population would have access to no care. Shifting gears a bit now onto the Ebola epidemic, and that's yet another crisis you dealt with as the head of the Doctors Without Borders. It seems to me and to so many like such a long time ago, personally, I was 11 when it started. But I'm curious, how did you observe the pandemic evolve from a handful of cases in a small forested village in New Guinea to a full-fledged epidemic? And as the head of Médecins Sans Frontières, what role did you play in combating the spread of the virus? Well, um, many things could have been done better, for sure. But uh, back then, uh, we have to remember that it started, the first cases started most likely in December 2013. And, uh, but the official, um, the official diagnosis of a patient with Ebola at Pasteur Lab and in other uh, P4 lab was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, around the 20th of March, 2014. And, and back then, straight from the beginning at the outset, people in the field told us, mm, I think it's different because we have cases coming from different spot of the region, 250 kilometers apart. And so, uh, so we thought that, uh, it means that there was chain of transmission, some somehow independent uh, going on. And, and, and so this was basically uh, giving us a clue that there's gonna be a much bigger outbreak than what we used to. Before that, the biggest one that we had was in Uganda in 2000, there were 400 cases. We have to remind ourselves that in West Africa, it was over three main country, the, the, basically the bulk of the cases, there were 20, more than 28,000 people who were infected and 11,000 people who died. This was never seen before. Uh, so it's, 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 it was different as well because uh, it was in the places where people were mobile. And in the first cases that happened, people started to, to be able to take a, a taxi bus, a cab, and just go somewhere else. And it started started to spread fairly, fairly fast. Uh, whereas in the past, it was often in a very remote village. And basically, once everybody would have it in a village, it would die on itself. So that was the difference. And, and we tried to bring attention to the different uh, I would say a uh, key player in, in, in international health. Uh, and, and regularly people were saying, oh, we, you, you, uh, you crying wolf, there's nothing there. Uh, everything is under control. And, and I remember that it was um, in, uh, at the end of June that one of the physicians said in the field did an interview uh, with one of the newspaper in Belgium and just said it's out of control. And people were really upset that we said it's out of control, but it was literally out of control. But it was the beginning of getting out of control. And so what we decided to do is, is after knocking at doors of different people for several months and trying to attract attention, I we, we've decided, uh, the operational director and I, uh, just say, let's go to the field, let's visit the country. And then after that, let's go on an advocacy tour uh, at the European Union and at the uh, the UN in New York City. And so that's what we did. So we went to the field for three weeks. We visited the different countries. We met the different presidents. And then we came back and and uh, on a tour and, and tried to bring attention. But we, we have to remember what was happening in 2014 by then. It was the time where 
um, Russia was basically uh, invading Ukraine, and and it was uh, it was a big big concern for the for the northern hemisphere, and NATO was deeply concerned, and all their the eyes were turned towards NATO and towards Russia. So there was that happening. Uh, Gaza, Gaza Strip was under fire. So there were like few crises. And most of the time, the world, I would say, we can deal with more than one crisis at a time. We don't have more attention uh, than for one more crisis. And so what happened is, is we did the advocacy tour in August. And at one point, you know, after a while, six months of advocacy, the, the planets align and people pay attention. The, the global north come back from vacation from their cottage. Uh, they rested and all of a sudden they can pay attention to what's going on. Well, Dr. Liu, we really have you and your team to thank that the Ebola epidemic stayed an epidemic. I remember, I was really young back then, but I remember all those headlines uh, in McLean's and in the New York Times. Knowing what I know now, I'm, I'm glad we took it so seriously and I'm not sure we would have had you not advocated for it so strongly. Uh, of course, just recently, you were part of the IPPR, uh, the committee that reviewed the World Health Organization on their response to COVID-19. What parallels can you draw from our response to COVID-19 and our response to the Ebola outbreak back in 2014? Well, uh, back then, uh, it was... It was clear in 2014 that we were not ready for uh, this sort of um, regional outbreak, and 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 after Ebola, because the the world got very very worried when cases started to come to the U.S. Uh, with two uh, Samaritan Purse uh, volunteer who were infected, uh, they were as well one of MSF doctors who was infected who got in, got treated at NYU Bellevue. There were some in the Europe as well, so so the world went into a sort of a hysteria about uh, about Ebola, and and they realized how vulnerable they were, and there were a lot of commissions that were set up, and and between the different and commission. Uh, which more than a dozen of them, uh, they all said the same thing is A, we're not prepared. B, we need to come up with a sort of a global plan together. We need to finance preparedness and, and, and surge for response. And, and this should be a, a priority. And basically of all the different, uh, I would say, recommendation that happened back then, less than 10% of what was implemented uh, that was uh, recommended was implemented and so um i so saw the 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 independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response that was set uh last year by the world health assembly gave the mandate to a group of people to assess and uh, the response of who as well as the its member states to covid-19 and it's the same we come up with the same thing is is we knew, but we need to repeat it, that, that the world was not prepared. And it's not because they didn't have any uh, warning about it. We had several warning from Ebola in 2014, but we had stress in 2003, we had the swine flu, we had Zika, we had MERS. Uh, so we have several of those uh, uh, calls. And, and, and despite that, uh, the world didn't come together. 
And so what we what we came up with, we came up with a set of recommendations to implement right away, uh, which was about what much more focus around how to protect the world, how to reshare and redistribute vaccine uh, across the world, and how can we ramp up production of vaccine. And another set of uh, package of recommendation that was much more in terms of system and transformational, and and it was about uh, how to finance a global response and uh, a preparedness plan, how to... uh, how to strengthen and empower the WHO to be able to respond, but to investigate when there's an emerging infectious disease uh, that is uh, with potential for pandemic and how can they as well be um, empowered to release data as it is coming along and not having to ask for permission to release data. Uh, the, the, the panel as well came up about uh, uh, making sure that if we are to develop tools to fight an emerging infectious disease, that we are really creating global common goods in terms of the different tools, uh, namely vaccines, but rapid diagnostic tests and uh, treatment. So these were like, I would say, the broad stroke of what the panel came about. And of what we said basically in May, 2021, none of the recommendations were implemented. And so we came up last week with a six uh, six months later uh, report called Losing Time. And basically we've lost time over the last six months. And and, and all the, the, the petty conversation that we have about um, intellectual property and waiving, uh, waiving uh, uh, having waivers for intellectual property, if we would have done that, you know, six months ago, we'd probably be in a shape now to start to produce some vaccine or some treatment in other corner of the planet. Now we talk about the parallels between the Ebola epidemic and the current pandemic that we're living through. And I think that there's a saying that perfectly encapsulates what we're seeing here. And that's that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And in this case, you know, we go through a pandemic, the world gets jolted awake, We scramble to save as many lives as we can, and then we make promises to change and be better prepared next time. But then we sort of inevitably fall back into this ignorant slumber until it all starts again. So my question is, what does the world need so that when we put out these well-thought recommendations out there, people actually listen and they actually take action? Well, we need political will. Mm. At the end of the day, it's political will. And then right Mm. now, if you look at our... You know, Canada being uh, an exemplary country in terms of chipping in for um, for uh, for the international aid response for for COVID nineteen pandemic. On the other hand, they're still sitting on the fence in terms of intellectual property uh, and and the trips waiver, and it's a pity because the longer we wait, the less uh, the, the it's it's wasted time in terms of preparing other hotspots to be able to manufacture a vaccine. And the way it looks like the vac- the, 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 the virus COVID-19 is gonna to continue to, to basically spread around the world, it's gonna to continue to mutate. And, and the reality is most likely we're gonna need you know, a vaccine booster every year. And if it's a vaccine booster every year, then it means it's 8 billion vaccine on a yearly basis, knowing that for the time being, uh, of of all the vaccine that's been produced, the eight billion, 
80% of those vaccines went to the G20 countries and very few went to the low and middle income country. And we still see the, the dramatic, uh, I would say reality that in some countries like in, in the Middle East, we're talking about Yemen, uh, but in, in Africa, we, we talk about Chad, they have less than 1% of the population who is vaccinated. Now, Dr. Liu, when most of us think of established organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières, one of the first thoughts that comes to our mind is, first of all, what amazing work you all do, but then also the bureaucracy and red tape that must come with it, for better or for worse. Now, during your time at MSF, I'm sure you've had a lot of experience in cutting through red tape. And what comes to mind particularly is your visit to Syria during the height of conflict. So my question is, do you think that government bureaucracy and this kind of red tape could have possibly restricted the pandemic response around the world? I think to to put it simply is I don't think that we are used to um, to manage crisis, especially in high income countries, not at that scale. And so we have overinflated bureaucracy in our government, and we try to make this whole, I would say, fatty layer of bureaucrats. Uh, work in a in in an emergency mode, and it's it's too cumbersome. And if you want to 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 be able to tackle tackle a crisis, then you need to have some what I call fast track decision making platform. Because if you if you need to align twenty different committees that need to to basically rubber stamp a decision, uh, it's unlikely that it's going to be in a timely fashion. Thank you, Dr. Liu. If you don't mind, I would actually like to switch gears a little bit. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to ask Helen Clark a question. Now, for those of you who don't know, Helen Clark was the former Prime Minister of New Zealand and also the former head of the United Nations Development Program. I believe she was also your colleague on the IPPR. The question I asked her was, how do you manage to stay so hopeful and optimistic in today's age when so many things seem to be going wrong and awry? Right. I, I find it very um, somehow odd um, to have, you know, wealthy um, individual living in a wealthy nation, uh, being pessimistic of, or being uh, cynical about what's going on. And I really do think that it's it's pretty cheap in terms of of stance. Um, I think that um, if we are that wealthy, then even more so should we uh, be more optimistic, because we have so much, so much to 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 fight uh, the different uh, challenges that we have uh, in front of us. And so I think that um, people who are pessimistic pessimistic or cynical about the future are pretty, I would say, um, I, I don't envy them because uh, it's, it's, it's a posture that is, that for me is, is, is a posture of the weak. It's a posture of the people who, uh, who have, are lacking imagination. And I think that it's almost indecent when you live in a G seven country like in Canada to be pessimistic or cynical about the future. We've got everything to make a brighter future. 
Uh, we're going in the best school that we can imagine. Uh, we, we eat three meals a day. We don't have to go through a checkpoint on a daily basis to go to work or to school. Uh, there's no bomb falling on our head. Come on, guys. Cheer up. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Liu. I heard an interview back in 2019 when you were still in the final months of your presidency that you wanted to take a step back, relax, and reconnect with loved ones. Of course, I can't be sure how well that went, uh, considering that you were dragged back by the pandemic. So I would really like to thank you for your time here, Professor. Um, I hope you enjoy your time here at McGill. And also, I hope you get some well-deserved time to unwind and relax. Thank you very much. And that, I'm sad to say, concludes our talk with Dr. Joanne Liu. And I have to say, I'm inspired, intrigued, and I'll need some time personally to process all that she said. But I hope that it gets you thinking about the way the world works and helps you realize the challenges that we need to surpass in order to deal with some of the biggest threats of our generation, amongst them being climate change. What Dr. Liu leaves us with is a stark reminder of where we are and how much more we have to go to surmount the stubbornness and bureaucracy and challenges that we face as a society and in our generation, but also a hope that there's many of us out there, such as the fearless individuals working for Médecins Sans Frontières, that are changing the world one patient at a time. Next up, we have a scientist that has dedicated her life to understanding the intricate mysteries of the gut microbiome and how it plays such a crucial role in health and disease. She shares insights into how she approaches tough problems, ways she and her lab are working to develop new therapeutics that target the gut microbiome. And she also talks about obstacles that she's had to surmount throughout her career and her life. Thank you again so much for listening to the STEMcast podcast. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.